Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thanks for joining us today. You know, the gig economy, that's something that sometimes gets a bad rap. People hear the phrase and they think of maybe rideshare drivers who are really unhappy with what they're doing and want to be full-time workers. In truth, though, the gig economy is a much more nuanced place than that. It's one that encompasses different kinds of gig workers. Sometimes those are highly skilled and who very much want to work that way. And some that are choosing to do this for a time, perhaps won't do it through their whole career. But it's not just one kind of worker. and It's not just low income, unhappy workers either. It's increasingly something that's becoming part of the mainstream. And companies are going to be looking to this more and more as a way to get the talent that they need, which has always been in short supply. You know, pre-pandemic, gig workers might have made up maybe just a sliver of the workforce, but I really think that that will change as we get into this post-pandemic world. As I said earlier, you know, companies are going to look for the right talent. They're going to be watching their costs and it may not work to just keep hiring full-time workers. So it's going to leave us with a very complicated workforce, one that's a a blend of employees and of gig workers. So there's a lot to talk about on this subject. I've talked about it a bit before. I'm going to talk about it again and again with different guests. Today, I'm really happy to be joined by Joseph Fuller. Now, he's a professor of management practice in general management at the Harvard Business School. He's also the lead author of a report about the gig economy. It's called Building the On-Demand Workforce, and it really tackles some of the questions around all of this. What comes next? What comes next as we come out of the pandemic and companies build up teams again try to take them into the next phase of things. So it's a really cool and interesting report and an interesting discussion. So please stay with us. Well, how important will the gig economy be to the future of work? And how can companies build the right culture around that? Well, our guest today is Joseph Fuller. He's a professor of management practice at the Harvard Business School, also a co-leader of the school's initiative called Managing the Future of Work. Now, he's also the lead author of a new report out called Building the On-Demand Workforce that centers around how companies can rethink their talent model using digital platforms to get the best freelancers. He joins me now from Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, to talk about the implications of all of this. Hi, Joe. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Linda. You know, uh, so much to talk about from the report, but I just like to start by asking people about their own backgrounds. How did you get to this place where you're at Harvard talking about the future of work? (laughs) Uh, I ask myself that uh, question often, too. Um, well, I, I went to um, Harvard uh, and Harvard Business School, and um, to be totally uh, transparent, I'm also a Harvard brat. My parents were both Harvard professors, and when I graduated from the MBA program, I entertained staying to get a PhD, but instead I um, helped start a consulting firm called Monitor, which is now called Monitor Deloitte. It was bought by Deloitte's after I um, uh, had retired from the firm. And um, Monitor was a firm that had a very high uh, kind of intellectual and uh, tech- technical content, did a lot of work with Harvard Business School professors. So I stayed in close touch with the school. And um, uh, as I turned uh, 50 a few years ago, I was saying to myself, I've, I was ready for another act. And um, 
looked at several things, and the school was kind enough to invite me to join the faculty, which I did now nine years ago. The um, At that time, we were running a major project on uh, the U.S. economy, and one of the issues that had not been uh, studied by any of the uh, my faculty colleagues who were on that project was skills and employability. And there was a feeling among our alumni who we were surveying regularly at the time that the U.S. had historically had a gap in, uh, had an advantage rather in skilled labor, but that that advantage had uh, waned. And in fact, skilled labor was an increasing problem. And so I started looking at the skills gap and that led me to, to look at a broad array of topics about the future of work. Um, as I engage more and more constituents, more interesting issues came up. And then several years ago, our outgoing dean, uh, Nathan Noria, was kind enough to allow us to set uh, the Future of Work project up as a standalone entity. And my co-chair, Bill Kerr, who's a scholar of immigration and, and uh, global talent flows, and I have uh, been running ever since. And now you have this new report on the gig economy, which, you know, doesn't really get the respect it deserves. People hear it and they think uh, Uber drivers who hate their jobs. But obviously, we saw more to explore than that. Why did you pick the topic? Well, we picked it for a couple of reasons. One, as you just suggested, we thought that there there were, were a couple of trends in the gig economy that were being ignored. And the biggest was the significant growth of people making more than $100,000 a year through gig work. Uh, between 2014 and 2019, the, the absolute number of people making less than $100,000 a year who were self-declared gig workers in the U.S. actually declined, but the number, a uh, smaller number admittedly, but the number of people making more than $100,000 thousand dollars a year was compounding at almost 20 percent and it gotten to be almost four million people the second thing is a little bit more subtle but i think is is quite important which is it's increasingly difficult for companies to command the attention and respect frankly of uh people with certain highly in-demand talents uh, data scientists, uh, artificial intelligence experts, um, people like that who um, are increasingly needed by employers of any size of all stripes. So if historically demand for, for that type of high-end technical talent was pretty limited to the tech sector, as more and more companies have adopted aggressive pa- uh, uh, programs to digitalize, there's a growing demand across sectors nationwide for that. And the old model of just going out and hiring the best person that applies for a job that you post doesn't work uh, anymore if you can't get a a candidate that's actually got the skills you need. And today, uh, just to pick five or six companies from across uh, the, the spectrum of industries and geography in the United States, Chevron Oil Company is competing with Whirlpool, the appliance manufacturer, is competing competing with Capital One, primarily a credit card company, is competing with Facebook and Boeing and Duke Energy for people with the exact same skills. And if you're not a preferred 
employer, if you're a smaller company, if you can't afford absolutely top level pay packs, and um, and or you're an industry that's not really well reputed or doesn't attract talent naturally, or in a geography that has trouble uh, attracting that type of talent, how are you going to fill that need? One way to do it is to acknowledge that while I can't hire world-class people full-time, I can hire world-class people on a project basis. So our belief was that that companies were going to be turning more to this. And we thought um, once we were had finished the research that COVID would just accelerate that. So we added a, a module of research about COVID's impact on the gig economy as well. You know, it's interesting. We've almost forgotten what things were like before the pandemic, but talent and a lack of talent and difficulty filling positions was always the top of everyone's list. Now, obviously, COVID skewed things a little bit, but how do you see things when we come out of this? Will this still be a war for talent or will it be mixed up a bit more because you'll have more automation perhaps in some industries? Well, I think there are going to be a couple of phenomena. One is uh, that a vast, vast majority of, of companies indicated that they were accelerating their investments in automation and digitalization, 85% of the respondents in our survey. And that matches data done by people like uh, Fortune Magazine with Deloitte and others that uh, COVID has really accelerated digitalization. That, of course, buoys demand for people with those digital skills. I do think that as more companies try to reduce the headcount intensity of their of their uh, processes, you are going to see some displacement of workers and not just low-skilled, low-wage workers who are in service industries that are going to be adversely affected for some time by COVID. I think you'll see, particularly with more deployment of advanced AI systems, I think you're going to see displacement penetrate areas of employment that have historically been more or less insulated from that type of technological displacement, including uh, white-collar workers. I'm not, I'm not quite sure I'd want to be a, um, a senior manager in a supply chain operation uh, going into the next several years, because I expect a lot of that is going to get displaced by AI. So you have the situation where you have perhaps a lot of competition, the company's still hiring, but they need to hire the people that are absolutely the right person at the right price, and maybe gig work is the way to go. So we have some platforms. Do we have the right platforms for this exactly? Well, actually, uh, supply prior to COVID was probably out, supply growth was probably outstripping demand. Um, We went from 80 platforms about five years ago, focusing on high skill talent, not just all platforms, uh, to over 300. And uh, they all saw a, well, most of them that we spoke to have seen a pretty dramatic increase in demand for their services. for a couple of reasons, there's a big surge of projects related to moving to distance work, and and uh, companies didn't have the IT staffs and the uh, data architects to manage all that, and then now you've got a, an ongoing surge of demand for digitalization. For example, as more companies mix shifts 
from traditional distribution channels and fulfillment to online only. So big spike in in needs of lots of companies that sell goods and services uh, to set up a better web presence, uh, add depth to their ability to deal with everything from uh, customer service complaints to uh, responsiveness of of their uh, pricing online and things like that. Um, the another thing that's happened is, of course, uh, people have hunkered down wherever they wanted to be or had to be, uh, and and that's caused a number of people to revisit how they feel about work. And one of the very interesting trends we're seeing in the United States, and it's, it's unsettling, is we've seen a significant exit of women from full-time work, either because they've got greatly um, it, uh, great uh, enhanced care obligations, for example, kids only going to school online, um, or because they're um, um, now kind of finding that now that they're not in the nine to five routine, there are elements of their life they want to they want to emphasize. And that's causing uh, the supply of gig workers to get bigger, as is um, the very, very dire consequence of COVID on certain sectors. So, for example, one of the uh, one of the uh, uh, high level gig platforms we talked about was is called TopTal, as in top talent, and essentially the entire IT staff of one of the major hospitality companies is available to hire on a gig basis through TopTal. Uh, so, uh, there there are a lot of moving parts to this, but we think what is going to be confirmed by uh, COVID is that more companies are going to turn to gig workers more often in more functions. Well, it makes sense in terms of efficiency, for sure, because you're not buying the whole person all year. And it also makes sense for a lot of workers who don't want to be sold for all year full time but it's still surprising how defensive people are about this from government through to individuals it's like you're challenging the system and the best ways to have workers full time and we can't operate without this yeah yeah well i think that's that's true for in in for both those types of decision makers For, for policymakers essentially whether it's um how you collect tax to who's eligible for what benefits, the logic throughout uh, certainly the, the traditional Western democracies is the world consists of people who are employed or people who are unemployed. Uh, but you know, if if you if you just look at the way tax is collected in the United States in terms of income tax, your employer withholds uh, cash from your paycheck every two weeks and sends it to the government. If you're a gig worker, you're probably paying quarterly taxes, which means the cash flows are different for the government. Um, whether it's what kind of benefits you're entitled to are distorted. And obviously, we have the whole um, um, Gordian knot of, of health care in the United States. So government regulators and legislators are, are uncomfortable when there aren't employers who they can hold accountable, where they can find how where people work and, and frankly, how much they make easily. For companies, companies are, this isn't the na- native stance for companies. Uh, 
you know, culturally, managers like to control their resources. Uh, they, um, uh, it's awkward when there's you know, an important project, there are one or two people who aren't known to the others, that don't know how we do things around here, is a phrase you often hear, who haven't demonstrated some significant commitment or engagement to the company. So whether it's supervisors or colleagues on a team, uh, it takes some getting used to. Uh, now, there are some other hidden benefits to having those gig workers. For the company uh, who is in the market for full-time talent, it's a bit of a rent-to-own model. I can, I can um, uh, retain Linda as a gig worker, and if sh she does a great job and she kind of enjoys working for us and working with us, maybe we've, we're on the road to making her an offer that she'll accept. Uh, in addition to that, and I think kind of importantly coming out of COVID, it's going to let companies, what, what the phrase I use is staff to the trough. Companies are very uncertain about, uh, particularly in some sectors, how robust the recovery is going to be. It's very, very hard for them to forecast what they're going to need. And I think they're going to be cautious about adding back staff on a full-time basis, particularly those companies that are deploying a lot of investment behind digitalization. So rather than go ahead and start staffing up it uh, based on the, my uh, mean forecast for the future, maybe what I'll continue to do is variableize my cost and try to keep my fixed cost of personnel just nipping over the, nipping the, the bottom of the wave sign I've got for likely demand growth as opposed to shoot uh, for the middle of the distribution or the top of the distribution, which is what companies uh, have historically done. So I, I think that that you we're going to find that um, this is something that is is going to uh, uh, get more deeply ingrained in the way companies do business. There's one other thing I just want to stress, which is you know we talk a lot about millennial workers and they have different attitudes and want something different out of work. And, you know, frankly, 24 year olds have been saying they don't want to be like their parents, probably going back to Cain and Abel. But, um, the, uh, um, but we do see that, that, uh, particularly these high skilled work workers with high levels of educational attainment in hot fields, they do, they, they express a greater focus on is the work I'm doing meaningful? It's everything from do I respect and like the, the 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 people I work for and the mission of this company and the goods and services we provide to I don't want to work on some boring project which just happens to be the most important project that my specific supervisor has and she or he is assigning me that. They want to work on stuff that's challenging, where they're learning, uh, where they can can really exercise some control and something they're proud to be associated with. Gig lets people choose that. They can just say, here's a, um, I let's say someone who is uh, very anti-smoking. So here I've got a, uh, you know, opportunity to do a gig for uh, British American tobacco. I'm going to turn that down because I'm, I'm opposed to smoking, but now I've got here, I've got a project for the Canadian blood service. Well, you know, that's a noble enterprise. They do good in the world. I'll be proud to not only do that work, but also to tell my friends about it. Okay, so you have this growing as a phenomenon, and you're bringing in these workers. 
how ready are organizations to make this work? The culture has not been about having casual workers or maybe having them, but not treating them as anything besides casual, maybe not very valuable workers. I would say that that on the whole, it's still early innings and most companies really aren't well configured to get the most value out of this. Um, some of the biggest barriers are, first of all, um, how you make managers comfortable relying on people they don't have a higher fire relationship with. Um, and in a lot of companies, strangely, the compensation systems are actually, your, your pay as a supervisor is actually influenced by the number of people that work for you. That's part of the formula. Um, and, and getting managers more focused on project success and getting work done to high quality is going to be required to unstick this, causing employees to feel comfortable that this is going to allow more work to get done, relieve them of burdens, make sure they've got colleagues with world-class skills doing elements of the project, as opposed to um, having a discomfort with someone who isn't part of the team, they don't know, and, may, and, and almost certainly is making more on a per diem basis uh, than that full-time employee is because we're going out and buying, paying someone retail as opposed to the wholesale price you will we paid for that full-time employee who we're giving benefits to and holiday time to and whatnot. It also, th- there's another element of this which is is uh, actually quite demanding on whomever owns the work product that's going to be created. You actually have to to think about how you design the work and assign the work differently. You know, we've all heard phrases like MBWA, managing by wandering around. A, a lot of projects, when they get kicked off in a lot of companies, they aren't very well structured. And you kind of muddle through the, the early parts where you're figuring out, actually, what are we trying to get done here? If you're going to be paying somebody the equivalent of a $1,000 a day or $750 a day to work on elements of, the, of a project, you don't want them wasting the first two weeks of the project kind of with everyone milling around intellectually trying to figure out who's going to do what. You have to design it. And you have to be able to describe what your expectations are of someone. And you have to think through how you're going to connect that person or team to resources in the company, whether it's data or other personnel, um, which your full-time employees may know intuitively. Any, anyone who's worked in a large organization will, will recognize that you know, they're the formal processes and they're, they're mirrored in a lot of informal processes. And if you know, I'm going to do a project uh, on customer segmentation, I may just know from previous meetings or through an acquaintanceship or through a coffee clutch that, that my colleague Linda has led several of those. And I could just call her up and say, what do I need to know about running this project? Well, if I don't work for the company, I don't know Linda, I don't know um, uh, the, the history of previous projects, I don't know that there's X or Y database out there, I'm going to find it, um, uh, it's going to be difficult for me to, to um, be as efficient as, as, a, as an internal resource. And it's incumbent on the person who's running these projects and who's going to benefit from them to, to think all that through 
uh, before you pull the trigger on on hiring expensive uh, expert gig workers. You talk to a lot of companies. Do you have examples of some that are doing this very well? Yeah, um, there there are a number. Um, the um, uh, there's a big Italian utility, which um, have done a very interesting job both using uh, gig workers to accelerate their digitalization and of, of things like uh, customer care systems, but they've also done a, a very interesting thing uh, using firms like Kaggle or Inocentive, which are crowdsourcing solutions. So, for example, um, they turn to Kaggle for ideas about how to accelerate their uh, green programs. And they're just engaging a different type of talent that way than they employ. Uh, you see uh, uh, companies like uh, Unilever, which I think is a generally can be characterized as, a, as one of the real leaders in thinking through the future work broadly. Um, both relying on high-skilled gig workers to uh, give leverage to um, uh, internal processes, but also using a platform called Catalent to make sure that they're deploying the talent they already employ against more important projects. So in a Utilever, they will have profiles of people and they will have profiles of skills required to do an important project in the company. And sometimes they're mixing and matching people who are pretty far removed from the actual uh, management hierarchy responsible for that important project because they've been identified as someone who's got a deep skill. Shell Oil is doing the same thing. So we're seeing some uh, leading global companies experiment with mixing and matching internal and external resources, trying to optimize their utilization of the resources they do have, and uh, working with uh, managers to make to overcome some of those barriers you were uh, referring to earlier, Linda. We talk so much about teams and how important teams are. How do you create a team when you have some workers who are employees some who are gig workers and also you know now the extra wrinkle of some remote and some not remote yeah well it's a it's um a major challenge and one of the things that probably will be uh one of the leading inhibitors of using high skilled gig talent by some companies or on some projects um if you can if you can uh uh rely on if you can put the put the work in chunks and blocks and isolate some of the work as an input, that's it. one way you can um, essentially view the gig worker as a supplier and the core team inside the four walls of the enterprise um, uh, it will would rely on normal team dynamics. Uh, one thing that's interesting on um, uh, on uh, platforms like uh, Brain uh, Trust and um, Catalent, you have actually a team of gig workers who, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of hunt as a pack. You know, it's, it's essentially almost a virtual company 
and they've recognized that there are uh, projects that regularly demand a, 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 a combination of skills that they as a, as a group represent and therefore can can um, uh, uh, propose to do the work as a group. Uh, so for example, companies like Porsche, the auto company from Germany have been using brain trust resources in that way to good effect. Um, how one maintains a team team in a distance setting, even if it's just all internal people, there's a lot of interesting research going on in that. And I think we've, we're beginning to see how challenging that uh, is, where uh, companies are seeing uh, an acceleration of behavioral health issues among employees. Um, I, I'm uh, a large tech company that that I um, work with sometimes is seeing a significant growth in people in their review process expressing an interest in unpaid leave or maybe moving on from the company because the regular routines of work have been suspended and they've now been suspended long enough that it's really beginning to corrode some of the attachment people feel to their teams and connection they feel to their employer. And I think if, if we do not uh, get out in front of this pandemic in the next few months, we're going to see that's going to start manifesting itself in some interesting ways, which we're not going to be all that um, all that uh, attractive for the employer because they're going to le- lose they're going to lose talent and they're going to lose alignment and and connection with with um, key employees and the, there's going to be a big cost associated with that. Hopefully they recognize that. Joe, thanks so much for joining us today. Linda, my pleasure. Joseph Fuller is a professor of management practice at the Harvard Business School and the co-author of the report, Building the On-Demand Workforce. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to know more about Joe and his work, please check out our show notes. You'll find some links there, including one to the report we were talking about today. If you did enjoy this episode, please remember to leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps people find us and that way we can continue the discussions around the future of work. Thanks so much for being here today. And thanks as always to Stokely Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work in the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production.